0: you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at two verses today, verses 51 and 52. We'll read it, we'll pray, and and then we will get to work. Jesus has just finished a whole section in Matthew 13 on parables regarding the kingdom of heaven, and the disciples have heard his teaching on all of these things. And He brings all of that to a conclusion and He asks them the million-dollar question. Verse 51. Have you, the you is plural, speaking to the disciples, the apostles, have you understood all these things? And they said to Him, Yep. And He said to them, Therefore, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Now, listen to this, guys. Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you and we just thank you so much. You conclude your teaching on parables with one last analogy, one last comparison, and it's a rich one. It it speaks of things which are, it it speaks of things which ought to be, and it also hints at things to come which are beautiful and amazing and precious and treasurable and joyous. And there's the hope and the promise of so much good here in in this short two verses. Lord, I pray for your people this morning. These are your people. You died on the cross for these people. You love them. You care for them. And you want them to find their deepest, richest, satisfaction, the fullness of all that they were meant to be in you. Lord, you have to do it this morning. You have to have your way with your people. Father, I am going to serve you the best I can. I've done the best I can in preparation and study for this message this week. Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me Father, let there be less and less of me and more and more of you shining through this text this morning. Father, I just beg you, God, don't let your people leave here this morning without understanding the richness and the fullness of all that there is here. Let them understand it. Let them grasp it, Lord. Give them the courage of faith to obey it. That they might treasure you, that they might be enriched by you, that they might enjoy more of you. That they would become truly, Lord, like wealthy, wealthy managers of a rich estate, dispensing blessings and treasures and joy to all. Let us be that kind of a people here at the bridge. We beg that you would do that among us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. J.R. Tolkien, the author of the uh, legendary Lord of of the Rings trilogy, Uh, once wrote in response to a letter that he had received from a fan, in response to an inquiry specifically about this character in his books known as Gollum, he wrote this statement to uh, an inquiring fan regarding what was ultimately the character flaw of Gollum. He that breaks a thing in order to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. Now what Tolkien is hinting at is that within this character Gollum, and it's a a metaphor for the larger society around us, when we're constantly dissecting and taking things apart and dismantling things in order to understand the core components behind each thing, if we do it just to understand the core component and lose sight of the whole, if we truly break things apart in such a way that we're just trying to understand each component while ignoring the larger structure, then we're fools. He crystallizes this in the character of Gollum in his Lord of the Rings trilogy. From the very first book, um, it makes this statement. This is uh, regarding the character of Gollum. He was interested in roots and beginnings. He dived into deep pools. He burrowed under green trees and growing plants. He tunneled into the green mounds. And he ceased to look up at the hilltops or the leaves or the trees or the flowers opening and budding in the spring air. His head and his eyes were downward. He used the ring to find out secrets. And he put his knowledge to crooked and malicious uses. The ring had given him power according to his stature. All the great secrets under the mountains, though, had turned out to be just empty night. There was nothing more to find out and nothing worth doing. Now think about that for a second. A character that has been given this ring, that grants him power, and he uses that power to take things apart, to figure out roots, to figure out how things work, to burrow under the hills and to look within the mountains, and he comes to the conclusion after all of his analysis, after a lifetime spent dissecting things, there's no more secrets to discover and nothing worth doing. He who breaks a thing apart in order to understand it has left the path of wisdom. What Tolkien was trying to capture in his Lord of the Rings trilogy in this character of Gollum was a metaphor for what he thought to be true of the world around us. A modern scientific age likes to take things apart to understand how they work. And in the dissecting of these different things... We understand more about the thing, but we lose sight of the whole, which ultimately just makes us more and more foolish, not more and more intelligent. To give you a brief illustration of what I'm talking about, it would be similar to discovering a sign as you're traveling to Vancouver that would say something to the effect of 200 more kilometers to Vancouver. And you're so wowed and impressed by the sign that you pull over by the side of the road and you observe metal stake poking into the ground, you look at the construction behind it, you think, okay, two bolts put this thing on this pole, it's reflective, it will shine brightly at night, that's fascinating, let's do chemical analysis, let's pour apart the sign, let's find out how it is that it can actually reflect light at night. Never mind the fact that the sign's only purpose there is to say 200 kilometers more to Vancouver, to point you in a direction to show you how far you are away from your destination. Much modern science is like this, When a boy falls in love with a girl, scientists say all that's really happening is hormones are dumping into his brain, he's experiencing a biological chemical reaction. And therefore, love, the essence of love, is nothing but something that is just going off in your brain, triggering the impulse to procreate. You ask the boy, hey, do you feel like chemicals are firing in your brain? And he's too busy staring with wide-eyed wonder at this beautiful girl to give any thought to the question you're posing to him. Sure, it is chemicals going in the brain, but there's a creator who triggers those impulses in us for a reason, to give us the joy and the pleasure of love. The fact of love ought to point us to a higher love. We're so enamored with dissecting the brain and looking at chemicals and understanding the biology and the chemistry behind it all that we've forgotten. The larger whole is love. And you say, that's all well and good, Clay Camp, but we're good Christians here. We understand that there's a God. We understand that we can look at the world around us. We understand that when we look at the sun and the stars and the seasons and the changing of the dead winter over into the new spring, we understand that all of these things point to a God. Good. That's good. And we understand that all those things are intended to lead us into a relationship with God. Good. That's good. But now here's the problem Do we not do sometimes to God what the rest of the world does to nature around us? Do we not sometimes just want to break God apart into all these nice, tidy little doctrines and theological truths? and little properties and verses that speak to this, that, and the other, do we, like to, do we not like to just break him apart into these individual little components? Do we not like to take his word, break it apart into these small, small fragments, become obsessed with the smallness of it, and lose sight of the whole? Do we need to know the smallest parts in all their detail? Before we're able to walk with the Lord in a meaningful relationship? The answer to that question is no. And these disciples here, if you're paying attention, you'll see it for what it is. Jesus asks the multi million dollar question Have you understood everything? I mean, he uses the expression, all these things. He's referencing his parables they just told in Matthew chapter 13, but if you look at the parables they just told in Matthew chapter 13, they speak to the end of the world, they speak to the coming kingdom, they speak to the reality of Jesus Christ, they speak to the fact that we're good and bad rooted together, that there are purposes involved in all that. I mean, Jesus has just told a couple of short parables that basically touch on every aspect of the universe. And then his question is, you guys get it? Do you understand? And their response is, yeah, we're good. We get it. Do you think they really do? Just keep your finger here with me and flip one page, go one page over to chapter 15. Jesus is teaching on what defiles a a person, and it makes the statement, you know, in verse 14, let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 15, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us, which if you had followed what he had said in Matthew 13, by the time you come to Matthew 15, Peter shouldn't be asking for a repeat. This is like Matthew 13, parables of the kingdom. It's like remedial remedial parable 101. You know, I didn't pay attention in grammar school, so I need need to go back to the basics. And Jesus points it out. Verse 16, Jesus said to him, are you also still without understanding? Okay, so go back to chapter 13. Jesus' statement to Peter is, you don't get it? You don't get it? Jesus is omniscient. He knows they don't get it. He knows that within one chapter later, Peter's going to be asking these boneheaded questions that point to the fact they don't get it. Jesus' statement at the conclusion of Matthew 13, at the conclusion of these parables is, do you understand everything? Just the nature of the question would give me pause. Like, whoa, whoa, like everything? Like, what are you saying here? But their response is typical of these guys. It's often typical of us. Quick to jump to conclusions without actually stopping and thinking about what we're thinking about, what we're talking about. Do you get everything? Yes. Now, we know that they don't. We know that their understanding isn't as good as they think it is. Jesus doesn't say anything about it. My daughter asks me to explain to her the inner workings of a combustion engine. Daddy, how does an engine propel a car? I have to stop and think to myself, do I fully grasp this concept myself? (laughs) Yeah, sure, I got this. So we sit down, I get a piece of paper. I draw V's and cylinders, and I draw pistons and crankshafts, and I'm talking about oil and uh, coolant flowing from the radiator, from the rad, and all of this sort of stuff. And she actually follows me the whole way through. Took me about 15 minutes. She's sitting there I think she's more mesmerized by my doodling on the paper than the actual explanation. I go through it all about 30 to 45 seconds in, there's this glazed sort of look that comes over her eyes. We get through it all, she's there the whole time. I stop, I say, so, you get it? Yep, and away she goes. Makes sense to me, and off she's going to play. Now does she get it? I don't, um, you know, maybe she does, but I'm pretty sure she doesn't. Do I fully get it? I'm not even sure I fully get it. So, I, you know, I'm questioning the explanation I gave to her. Just this assumption, yes, I've heard it. I've heard the material, and I get it. Jesus' statement is, have you gotten it? They say, yes, and he's omniscient. He knows everything. And he knows they don't fully get it. Now, If it's important to me, for my daughter, to master the inner workings of a combustion engine, I would say to her, Chloe, you don't get it. One more time, and we're gonna go through it. We repeat, we recycle. I get a bigger sort of, you know, thing. I'm on this little piece of paper, I'm gonna move it to like a four foot, six foot dry erase board, and we'll diagram it all out. You don't understand, I'm gonna help you to understand do you understand? No. Not going to repeat. And the purposes for why Jesus is not going to repeat is not because he doesn't want them to understand. It's not because he's confident that they have understood. We know that they don't understand. The reason why he's not going to repeat is because whatever minimal level of understanding that they possess is sufficient. They don't get it all. You don't get it all. I don't get it all. All of us in this room are going to have to spend some time over the course of our lifetimes coming back to things that we thought we knew, that we thought we understood. We understood them at a basic level. And when we revisit them, we're going to understand them at a deeper level, a better level, a wiser level. Jesus doesn't stop and say, no, 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 I'm going to explain this all to you all over again a second time, not because he doesn't want them to get it, but perhaps they need to get out doing some living of life before they can return to these subjects and fully understand. I say, how do you know that? Because of what he says in the very next segment. There are two points of comparison here, two points of comparison we're talking about scribes to disciples and we're talking about the kingdom of heaven as compared to a wealthy master of a house who dispenses treasure out of his treasury. Two points of comparison. And these two points of comparison as we look at this need to apply, be applied to us in this way. Scribes must become disciples and disciples must become wealthy masters of houses dispensing the blessings of the kingdom. Wash and repeat. Scribes to disciples, disciples to wealthy homeowners and repeat. Scribes to disciples, disciples to wealthy homeowners and repeat repeat. Watch what Jesus does here. Verse 52, he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Do you get it? Yes. Okay, not really. I'm going to give you this statement. A, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom is like the master of a house. Now, the word choice here is significant. These guys have never been called scribes. They're uneducated fishermen. They, for the most part, probably don't even know how to read and write at this juncture in time. So how do we know that? Because Peter, he's one of the twelve. We have two books written by him in the New Testament, first and second Peter. First Peter was clearly written by an amanuensis that is a secretary, and we know that because the Greek, the poetry of 1 Peter is beautiful, it's deep, it's wonderful, and then we come to 2 Peter and we know, because Peter makes a statement, we know he's writing 2 Peter and he's not using John Mark, he's not using an amanuensis or a secretary, and you come to the language of 2 Peter and you're like, if you've ever studied Greek and you've ever tried to pick it apart, it's just like the worst thing ever. It's like horrible run-on sentences, the, the structures don't flow together very well, it's all chaotic, and you know, like, yeah, Fisherman wrote this, I can, I can see that. So you know that these guys aren't educated. You know that they're not smart. I mean, I beg your pardon, they're intelligent, very intelligent people, but they're not educated, they're not, like, lettered in terms of going to a a, a university. I I don't mean to say that they're not smart, I I beg your pardon. They're very sharp, very intelligent people. They're not lettered, they haven't gone to university, they haven't been educated in terms of writing and, and Greek language and grammar and all of this sort of stuff. You know that. His statement to them is every scribe, a scribe is a lawyer in this day and age a scribe a scribe would be kind of like Odette, okay. This is someone who's gone to school. This is somebody who has clearly studied the law. This is somebody who has been trained. He's certified. He understands it. This is like a full fledged lawyer, okay. This is somebody you have to go to to resolve things like property disputes. This is somebody you have to go to to resolve things like title if you want to settle a legal affair. These are guys that are trained in law and they're specifically trained in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament, all the writings of the Old Testament, govern Israeli society, Jewish society, Jewish culture. And so these are individuals who literally are called scribes. One of their fundamental means of training and preparation wasn't just debating the finer points of the law. It wasn't just debating the finer points of theology that come out of the Old Testament they began their education simply, as the word says, as a scribe copying down the law over and over and over again. They would read the Old Testament, and they would hand write out copies of it. And it was an incredible discipline. You had to copy it just as you see it on the page, word for word, no misspellings, exact grammar, all of this. You had to copy the Old Testament over onto a separate piece of parchment. You had to copy the whole thing. History tells us that scribes wouldn't qualify for the later stages of learning until they had made several copies. We don't exactly know the exact number of copies that they need to make. Some have speculated three copies of the Old Testament before it qualified to go on to the next stage of becoming a scribe. Other scholars have said it's five can you imagine copying the entire Old Testament by hand three to five times? Most of us live in the world of keyboards. I, just to sort of understand this, this past week took to copying Matthew out by hand, just so I could get a full grasp of what's going on here. My hand starts to cramp up. I'm a baby, okay, you can say it, it's It's fine you're copying this thing out by hand and to get the exact word order, you read it and then you start to write it and then you're like, well, I'm sort of already automatically in my own mind putting it into my own words, not writing exactly as I'm reading it, so i got to stop myself go back, write, go back write, and it takes forever plus, I also live in the day and age of automatic spell check spelling was an issue as well which is interesting because you just read it right there and then you just kind of, oh, oh, wait. No, that's, I did that wrong. The I before E except after C gives me problems every time. I'm always putting the I in the wrong spot. These guys had to write out copies of the Old Testament to qualify as scribes. And do you know who else was required by Scripture to make copies? The king. Don't flip there, just listen. This is from Deuteronomy 17 18. It might be up on the screen behind me. God speaking to the prophet Moses as he's writing it down in Deuteronomy regarding the king. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law and it's going to be double-checked. It's going to be graded. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. The king of Israel, a part of his instruction to be king was to know the Old Testament, to know the law, and to know it so thoroughly he wrote it down and he made for himself copies of it. And he couldn't just go off and make copies. His copies were double-checked. By the Levites. A scribe is a person who knows the Bible by rote. A scribe is a person who knows the Bible by debate. A scribe is a person who knows the Bible as a result of being actively involved in settling disputes, legal, ethical, and otherwise, with his knowledge of the scriptures. This is not some academician sitting in a classroom, just studying. This is somebody who has studied and now sits in a law office somewhere, using it, having real conversations from people, back and forth, mediating disputes, teaching people, as well as making copies by hand. This is a guy who gets it, who knows it, who has a working knowledge of it. This is an expert. The Greek word here is graphitou, to write, to copy. And he makes the statement using the noun form of that, graphitou, a scribe, every scribe who has been, look at this next word, trained. The expression there is trained, but the word that is used for that It's Mathetua, disciple. Depending on which translation you're reading, another way of explaining this expression, another way of interpreting it, paraphrasing it, if you will, every scribe who has been discipled. Scribe focuses on the writing and the copying. Trained or discipled focuses on the doing, the obeying. Do you understand all of these things? Yes. I don't really think you do. But here's the response. Every scribe who has been discipled for the kingdom of heaven, every individual who has spent time learning and studying and memorizing and making handwritten copies who is then Doing, who is then engaging with, who is then participating and practicing what he has learned, is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things both new and old. That's what Jesus is getting at. Every person in this room, we spend time in Bible studies, we spend time looking at Scripture, we spend time talking. And those are wonderful things. What happens in the life group midweek, what happens in here on a Sunday morning, those are vital. Those are things which must, must take place. But what we're really doing is scribe work. What we're really doing is the head work. But it wouldn't be right to say that we've begun to do heart work yet. Because the hard work is done only when we take what we've been taught, only when we take what the Scriptures have said to us, and we obey and we do what the Lord is asking us to do. These, di- these guys don't even fully get it. And Jesus is going to break it down for them. He's not going to go back and revisit. At this point in time, it's not important that we go back and break it down and get all the nuanced particulars out of it. They say they understand it. They get it at some level. And now... Jesus, as he moves into chapter 14, chapter 15, he's going to go out and start ministering. They think they get it, they don't fully get it. Jesus's point is we're going to take what has been spoken and we're going to go do some training with it. That's what's about to happen. If you're here today, there's one other. Analogy, one other point that I want to bring out of this text. A scribe was an Old Testament disciple. It was the foundation of the New Testament. Our understanding of the Old, promises made, are fulfilled in the New Testament. The promises that were made in the Old Testament are promises kept and fulfilled by Christ in the New. A scribe, a student of the Old, must become a disciple. That is, a trained participant in the new. Which means if you're here today and you have not transferred allegiance over to Jesus Christ, the first step of our becoming householders, the first step of our dispensing wealth, becoming participants in the kingdom of heaven, will require going from merely an academic learner to an act of surrendering to Christ, a transfer of allegiance to Jesus as King. If you're here today and you have not become a Christian, you have not surrendered your life to the will of the King, then what I'm about to say has no bearing on you and has no application for you. Everything that follows hinges on that first Going from being a learner to becoming a part of, to becoming one with Jesus. He makes the statement every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Notice the word priority here. He doesn't say what is old and what is new. He says, What is new and what is old? In seminary, and this is a side comment that I just want to make, you ought to regard me, people with masters of divinities or or PhDs or these academic types. I think it would be good to regard us as golems. Wide eyes, good for reading books with, my dear and pasty skin that has never seen daylight. (laughs) If that helps you to understand academic life, then good. That's how you need to understand it. As a participant in academic life, as one who's got a master's degree and is flirting with the idea of a PhD, I can tell you, honestly, straightforwardly, from personal direct experience, you ought to regard us academics as golems. People who spend all their time indoors reading books and discovering secrets and mysteries, but have oftentimes lost the point of living those truths out. I had toyed with the idea of doing the whole sermon in Gollum's voice today, but <laughs> didn't think my throat could take that kind of abuse, so I didn't want to, you know, and some of the younger folks among us might have been horrified, so I didn't want to do that to them. If that's you, if you just like to read and learn and study and never actually go out and apply and do it and live it, whether you have a master's degree or PhD or not, you're basically like master's degree, PhD people in that sense. You've got a lot of learning, but Christ speaks to us for the sake of living. You'll know a lot of know-how but you don't know how to do it. This next point, I think, will really drive it home. Jesus says here, "Every person, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom is like a master of a house who takes out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The new gives priority to the old. The old is really only understand in light of the new. Promises made are only fully understand, understood and grasped in their fullness in light of the way that they are kept by Jesus Christ in the new. But the major thrust of this second phrase, it says, every scribe who has been trained for a kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house. This is a wealthy property owner who, and the ESV translates it, brings out of his treasure. That is a weakening of the force of the verb. The literal rendering of this verb is, every person who has been trained flings out. The verb here is a person who's got treasure and the way that he dispenses of it is he is just shoveling it out of his treasury as fast as he can. He's flinging it out there. You need to think of a guy running down the street with a bag of money in his arms and he's just throwing it to the wind and you got these hundred dollar bills just flying all over the place and of course everybody's chasing after him trying to scoop all this stuff up. That's the understanding of what Jesus is getting at here. Which means that a true Christian, a truly trained, that is, discipled scribe of Christ, is someone that when he walks down the street, when people encounter him, when people interact with him, they want to be near him and they take joy in who he is and how he brings blessing into their life. We're not talking about just simply sharing the gospel although the richest and deepest joys are found in sharing the gospel, we're talking about an individual who is caring and considerate and compassionate, who's attentive and considerate of the needs of others. As a result of his relationship with the Father, he's learned to look outside of himself because he knows the God who looked outside of himself for our sake. And so now, striving to be like the God who sent his son to die on the cross, he himself lives a life that is sacrificial for the blessing and the joy others he's not gone he's not sitting in a darkened room with a light and a book or an iPad as the case may be with pasty skin and bright big eyes he's an individual who's out in the sunlight with people, blessing people flinging out blessings to people Do you guys get it? Yes. And he knows that they really don't. But you know what? He's moving on from this chapter, chapter 13, into chapter 14. And they're coming with him. And he's going to do some good deeds. And they're still not going to get it. But they're going to take what they know and they're going to put it into practice and they're going to grow in their knowledge and in their understanding by virtue of experience. Understand this, church. Understand this. All of our time in Bible study, all of our time in life group, all of our time on Sunday morning worship, if we don't go out of here today and actually strive to do the things we've learned about, we haven't learned anything. We've become like Gollum. And the scriptures bear witness to this. I have a couple of scriptures programmed in the computer. I hope they pull up. If not, that's okay. Just listen. The scriptures are very clear. Knowledge of God produces obedience. John 17, 26, Jesus makes the statement, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus makes the statement, I came and I proclaimed truth. I came, I dispensed knowledge. He says, I have made known to them your name, the name of the Father. Name, understand, it, con- it conveys identity, it conveys purpose, it conveys aspects of character and personality. Jesus is saying, I came and I told them who you were. I made your name known to them. For what purpose? Just so that they'd be a lot smarter? Just so that they would be good with their Bibles? No. He says, I came and I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Now, the priority, the emphasis here is on this. Jesus has come to communicate to us, and he's going to continue to communicate to us. We need to know about God. What we do here is important. What we do in life group is important. We need to know about the Father. There is a priority. It starts with a knowledge of God, but it never stops there. It moves on to the second phase. He says, I have come, I have made your name known. I'm going to continue to make it known. Why? For what purpose? That the love with which the Father has loved the Son may be in the disciples. In other words, I have made known your name to them. I have communicated knowledge to them that they would be obedient to that knowledge and that they would love people, love each other, love the Father, love me the way that the Father has loved me. The knowledge is intended to produce love. Knowledge of God, true knowledge of God, produces obedience. And here's the kicker. Obedience to God produces knowledge. And this is what's going on with this transitional statement here. Do they get it? They think they do, but they really don't. Is Jesus about to go out and start doing some stuff, and are they about to start following him and obeying him? Yes, they are. And that obedience, that seeing the bigger picture, that living in the daylight, that keeping your eyes on the whole scope and not just getting boggled down into these minutiae little tiny details, doing it will increase understanding of it. John 7, 17, they're saying to him, to Jesus, how do we really know that you're teaching the truth? Jesus' statement is, if anyone's will is to do God's will, now just stop there for a second. If anyone makes the the choice, the decision in their heart to actually go out and obey and to do what God wants them to do, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will Know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words, your ability to discern between what is true teaching and what is false teaching, in other words, your capacity to know truth hinges on your desire to obey. Meaning, if your will is to do God's will, you can pick those things apart. In other words, the doing leads to a heightening of the understanding. And we know this from... Common sense, everyday, practical living. We know that experience, the ability to do something, flows from a basic understanding of that thing, but that our understanding of that thing is heightened and increased by our doing. My grandfather, he was a farmer. Most of you know this. Farmers will kill themselves for a dollar. I cannot think of any more difficult way to earn a living than trying to raise crops and make money off of that. I mean, he lost money on it, you know, many farmers do. But there was something about his love of the earth that compelled him to farm. As he got older, he came and he visited. And of course, he's doing some project because he's always working. He never just came just to sit on the couch and hang out. Farmers don't do that. They come, they kind of wander around your living room in circles. They say, hi, how's it going? And then within 30 minutes, they want to go out and be fixing something or doing something. And so he comes and he visits, and then he's out in the yard building something. I don't remember what it is now. And I'm wanting to spend time with my grandfather, so I go out with him. And he's hammering a nail into, he's building something. He says, Joshua, do you know how to hammer a nail? Think about the question now. Do you know how to hammer a nail? Well, I had just seen him do it. I'd seen my dad do it a million times. I'd seen it. I'm like nine years old, ten years old. Yeah, I know how to hammer a nail. Yeah, I get it. You get it? Yes. Hands the hammer over to me. Go ahead and pound the next one. Okay. I can do this. I've observed. I know. Right? Put the nail in the wood and it suddenly occurs to me if I miss the nail and I hit my thumb that's going to hurt you know hands shaking (laughs) and he's just sitting here watching me you don't really know how to hammer a nail do you yes I really do I know how to hammer a nail by all means and somehow I hit that sucker And I didn't hit my thumb. So far, so good. And I just got it started. It's in the wood. Sweet. That's a load off. Take my hand away. Bang, 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 bang. I don't have the strength and I don't have the practice. I don't have the muscle memory. My hammer is all over the place. I bang this nail probably for three to five minutes straight. By the time it's been smushed into the wood, it's making sort of an artistic sort of swirl around, and then it's been (laughs) pressed into the wood. I didn't actually drive the nail straight into the wood, but for all practical purposes, I did, in fact, get that nail in. I do all this, bam, last hammer, look up at my grandfather, I'm proud, that's right. (laughs) And he says to me again, you don't really know how to hammer a nail, do you? I'm like, what are you talking about, man? It's in there. It's, no, no, no. And of course, my, uh, my grandfather, tip, tap, bam. One hammer, one smack, all the way in. says, if you knew how to hammer nail, that's how you'd be doing it. <laughs> that's Christianity for some of us. You've seen it done. I can lecture you for hours on end on the intricacies of a hammer. It's got a metal head, handle, rubber grip most of the time on one end. It's got a claw on the back end for when you mess up, you can pull out the nail. I can tell you about the details of a nail, I can tell you about what it is to place the nail. I can go through all the motions. I can explain all of the intricate, finer points. If I really worked at it, I could probably drag it out into a 35, 45-minute sermon. Okay? Here's how you nail a nail. And you can hear all of that knowledge, and you can think to yourself, yes, yes, this is true. I hear that. I've seen that. I understand that. But listen, seeing, understanding is not the same, as far as the scriptures are concerned, as knowing. On some level, as we live out our Christian life, guys, we're going to have to actually do the things we hear about in this room. We're going to actually have to go out and strive in some way to apply, to strive in some way to love, strive in some way to share the gospel with someone. We can come in this room week after week, and I fear for some of us this is what we do, and it's all we do week after week after week. We come, we listen, we understand. Yes, that's how a nail is to be driven, and we deceive ourselves into thinking we know when we really don't know anything. And we can't know until we do. My prayer for you is that you would do it. Because if you just come and you hear it, it's like looking at something without seeing by it. It's like taking biblical truth and breaking it apart into its tiny little pieces of the puzzle, just like Gollum. And you understand all of these little intricacies and you think you get it, but you don't really understand any of it. You're kind of like the world and the way that the world says, when a boy falls in love, he's not really in love, he's just got hormones firing in the brain. They've taken something beautiful, they've broken it down into its basic parts, and they've said that's all that it really is, when we know it's way much more for anyone who's ever been in love. But we do what the world does with biology and chemistry, we do it sometimes God C.S. Lewis wrote this book called God in the Dock and he's going to hint, he's going to flat out describe in the most profound way the difference between looking at something versus participating in it, engaging with it my prayer is that as we leave this room we see what Jesus is saying here to these disciples They don't fully understand it, but they get enough. He's going to walk with them through some obedience. They're going to get a little bit better, and then we're going to learn a little bit more. We're going to do, we're going to learn, we're going to do, we're going to learn. Wash and repeat, cycle after cycle after cycle. And this is how C.S. Lewis describes it. Christianity that just looks at stuff. Christianity that just studies Scripture versus Christianity that engages with and participates. This is C.S. Lewis's meditation in a tool shed. I was standing today in a dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood... That beam of light with the specks of dust gyrating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost completely pitch black. I was seeing the beam, but I was not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and, above all, I saw no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the tool shed door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, I saw the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. When we come in here and we look at what Christianity is, and I tell you, it's a wonderful thing. It's a, a place to love and to be loved. It's a place to be comforted and to be encouraged and to be reassured. It's a place to belong. It's a place where you know that there's a God that will move heaven and earth and literally give everything, sacrificing himself for you. You think you get it. I assure you you would get it in a totally different sense if you tried to move heaven and earth if you tried to sacrifice everything yourself if you tried to pour out all that you are for the blessing and the benefit of someone else You think you understand God's love. You can see it. It's like staring at a sunbeam. But if you were to actually step into it and try to practice it and try to do it and to serve your fellow man the way that the Lord your God serves you, regardless of the success or the failures that you would encounter in that experience, as you literally broke all that you were to bring blessing and happy and joy and salvation to others, your understanding of the Father would be radically different, deeper, more profound. And your joy and your happiness would be way, way, way higher. My prayer for you is that you would be a scribe, yes, a scribe but more so with whatever knowledge you've gotten with whatever understanding of Jesus you have that you would begin the process of discipleship where you fling out the treasure and the blessings of the kingdom for the enjoyment of others my prayer for you is that you would move from looking at the light to seeing along the light beam. And it's a great experience for those who do it. Let's bow for a word of prayer.